Why Revelation chapters 21 and 22? Um, there is a reason. Last week, we thought about the meaning of Jesus' birth and how the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we best understand it as the Lord Jesus coming to dwell with us in our wilderness as we make our journey through this world. And Revelation 21 and 22 is the conclusion to the pilgrimage. This is what we read about our home when we are no longer pilgrims and strangers and aliens, but when we come home. And so that's the logic, that's the reason. As we thought about the first advent of Christ, our thoughts were naturally led to the hope of his second coming. And as we think about the hope of Jesus' second advent, we realize that it is from there, as we consider the end, that we find encouragement for our souls for today. And so I want to give you an, a big picture overview and organize our reflections upon three points to get a glimpse, to get a view of the glories of our homecoming. And the first thing is that the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. So in chapter 21, verse 2, we read, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this New Jerusalem is a really a composite image of what we read in the Old Testament and what we read in the New Testament. So if you look at chapter 21, verse 12, this is what it says about the New Jerusalem, about the New Jerusalem that comes down from God. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So the gates of this new city, New Jerusalem, um, they have inscribed upon them the 12 tribes of God's Old Testament people. Now look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the New Jerusalem's foundations are inscribed with the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we read that the apostles are themselves the foundation of the New Testament church. So what we see here, because the gates are inscribed with the 12 names of the Old Testament uh, tribes, Israel of God. And the foundations of the walls are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, the church of God. So the, uh, this city, New Jerusalem, is a composite imagery. It brings together God's Old Testament people and God's New Testament church. The Old Testament Jews who long for the Messiah and the New Testament believers who follow the Messiah 
are one bride of the Lamb. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? Because if you think about who the Old Testament Israel were and compare them against the Gentile believers of the New Testament, they lived in amazingly different places, in amazingly different times and cultures, and yet they are all brought in into New Jerusalem. Whoever they were, anyone and every person who has hoped in Jesus Christ are brought into the city of God. And the second thing we learn about this city is verse 16. The city, its length the same as its width, 12,000 stadia. Now, when it comes to ancient measurements, there's some wiggle room exactly as to how long is each stadia. But roughly 12,000 stadia uh, is about 1,500 miles. And so to put that into perspective, that's the distance between New York and Houston. So that's the distance of one side of New Jerusalem. Remember, its width, its length, its height are the same. And what that also tells us is that this vast city is also a perfect cube. And that's interesting because... There is only one structure in the Bible that is a perfect cube, and that's the Holy of Holies in the Bible. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It's the place where the Old Testament high priest could enter it, but once a year. And any other time to enter into the Holy of Holies meant death, both for him and for others. But what we see here is that because Jesus died on the cross because he cleansed the sins of his people. Now the place of God's dwelling is no longer where sinners go to die, but the place of God's dwelling is where sinners now go and live. That's the significance of this vast, great city. The entire city is the holy of holies. The entire city is the dwelling place of God, and Jesus has brought us into it. And that continues in the description of the city that we read in verses 18 and on. You read that the city is adorned with 12 different kinds of jewels. Actually, these are the same 12 jewels the the same 12 stones that the Old Testament high priest carried on his breast piece. Uh, If you read uh, Exodus chapter 28, you read about uh, the the garment, the, can I call it, the uniform of the Old Testament high priest. And upon his breast were 12 precious stones. And they uh, symbolized, they signified something. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 28, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. You see, these precious stones were inscribed with the names of Old Testament tribes. And the high priest would carry these precious stones upon his chest symbolically carrying God's people in his heart as he walked into the presence 
of the Lord. And that was the function of the high priest, to carry God's people upon his heart and to bring God's people into the presence of the Lord. And so when we realize what these images are drawing from, you realize the point that is being made is this, that Jesus, the high priest, he carries us in his heart into the holy of holies. That's our glorious home. The holy of holies that no one could have dared enter. Jesus has brought us in, carrying us in his heart. And in him, and because of him, our sins are forgiven so that we do not enter into the holy of holies to find death, but we enter into the presence of God as justified as saints, and we find life. The dwelling place of God is with man. Secondly, our home is where we find the tree of life, the tree of life. Did you notice how the end of Revelation brings us to the beginning of Genesis? Genesis chapters 2 and 3, this is what we find. God created Adam and Eve, and God commanded man to eat of every tree, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And standing right next to the, knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the center of the garden was a tree of life. They're right next to each other in the middle of the garden. And the Lord said, do not eat from every tree in the garden. I give it to you. But do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But man, as you know, man disobeyed. And because of his disobedience, he was expelled from the garden for this explicit purpose, that he may not reach out and take from the tree of life. So Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, they were expelled from the garden so that they may not take hold of the tree of life. And that tells us something really important. These two trees in the middle of the garden were teaching Adam and Eve something really important. In that as wonderful and as beautiful as that garden paradise was, God actually has something better in mind for them. Because you see, in Eden, Adam and Eve had a life that could end. And of course, that's what exactly happened, isn't it? In, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a life that could come to an end, and through their sin and disobedience, their life came to an end. And in Eden, Adam and Eve had fellowship with God that could be broken, and it was broken because of their sin and disobedience. And so the tree of life, standing next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life was a promise that through obedience, God will grant them something better than what they had in the garden. And from the rest of the Bible, and especially from Revelation chapter 22, 
we see what it was that God was promising them through the tree of life. Because Revelation 22 brings us to the tree of life. And it tells us what man forfeited through disobedience. Christ earns for us through his obedience. What is it? Through Jesus, we receive a life that cannot end. You know, this is what we mean by eternal life. Adam and Eve did not have that in the garden. They were promised that through obedience, their life will no longer be one that could die and end, but through obedience, they would receive a life that could not end. They disobeyed, they forfeited, and they lost. But through Jesus, we receive a life that cannot end. And Adam and Eve, they had a fellowship with God in the garden that could break, that could come to an end. But through Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of fellowship with God that cannot break, that cannot come to an end. That is why in chapter 22, verse 3, we read, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. No more will there be anything accursed. No more accursed serpent to creep in. No longer hiding from God in fear. That's why verse 4, they will see his face. Do you remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? They were afraid to look upon God. They hid, but no more. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So what we see when we go to our true home, when our journey is over, when we are no longer exiles and pilgrims, but when we come home, what we see is a complete reversal of the serpent's schemes and a complete healing of all that sin has caused. And that's important, isn't it? And that gives us hope because we experience in life the curse and the consequences of sin. Life often feels like a barren wilderness of toil and trouble. Isn't that what Moses said in Psalm 90? As he talked about the years of toil and trouble. We don't live in the pristine paradise, but we are exiles. We long for paradise. But in the end, God brings us not back to the garden where we may once again lose everything. But God brings us in the end to that very thing for which the garden itself was a promise and a symbol. So chapter 22, verse 1 then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It is a pure life, a mighty 
torrent gushing from God's throne to do what? Next verse, verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, uh, the torrent flows. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And do you see the river of life constantly nourishes the tree of life and its fruits bring healing. What Adam and Eve lost through disobedience, we gain through Jesus Christ. The life that cannot end, the fellowship with God that cannot be broken, we gain through Jesus Christ. And this really gives us a perspective or perspective correction. Um, You know, I've met enough people who say they are Christians, and I think they are. Um, But they're reading garbage, like Austin's Your Best Life Now. Your best life is not here, and it is not now. Some people think that their best days are behind them. Actually, what Scripture tells us is that the best is yet to come. Because there is a home that is before us. And in that city of God, in New Jerusalem, Everything that sin has done will be undone. Everything that we have lost through disobedience is given to us. Life that cannot end. Fellowship with God that cannot break. So that's the second thing about our home. First, it's the dwelling place of God. Second, there is the tree of life. And thirdly and finally, This is the hope that carries us to our homecoming. He is coming soon. He is coming soon. Now note the threefold promises. Chapter 22, verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. And then thirdly, lastly, chapter 20 to verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Three times it is promised. Three times Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. But what does soon mean after 2,000 years? Well, it means this. It means that there is nothing more that remains to be fulfilled between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. There's nothing more that remains to be fulfilled between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return. That's what soon means. So we live each day with an expectation and hope that he will come soon, that nothing stands in his way 
of returning. Yes, you know, even the book of Revelation itself, we hear the saints in heaven crying out to God, how long, how long? And we do that too, don't we? We do that too, yes. But nevertheless, we live with hope for His coming. How and what does that even mean? It means this. Now, the book of Revelation personifies worldliness under the figure of Babylon. And Babylon is both a city and is a woman. And it's symbolic. And it's the personification of worldliness. And throughout the book of Revelation, we read various things that are said about Babylon. For example, chapter 14, verse 8, Babylon is sexually immoral. Chapter 16, verse 19, Babylon is the object of God's wrath. Chapter 17, verse 5, Babylon is the mother of prostitutes. Chapter 18, verse 2, Babylon is the haunt of everything unclean. Chapter 18, verse 10, Babylon will receive, in the end, torment. And chapter 18, verse 21, Babylon will be, in the end, destroyed. So this figure of Babylon, which is both a city and a woman, it's symbolic, it's representational of worldliness against which we struggle and we fight. And what Babylon does, Babylon seduces with riches. Babylon tempts with pleasure. And you and I can resist her only if we see her for what she really is. Babylon is a tawdry whore wearing too much makeup to cover up her true horrific self. Worldliness seems attractive because her glitter hides the death that lurks underneath. Or can I put it this way? You can, put a ma- you can put makeup on a zombie, but it's still a zombie. You can dress up a zombie in beautiful dress. You can put lipstick on a zombie, dunk her in a vat of perfume, but it's still a zombie. Rotting, putrefying, horrific. And that's what Scripture says is Babylon. It dresses itself as a beautiful woman. But it is really nothing less than a zombie with a makeup. And no one who has seen the true beauty of the bride of the Lamb, and no one who truly understands how deeply Jesus loves his bride, will be tempted by this mother of prostitutes. And that's what it means to live with hope for Christ's return. It means being deeply satisfied with Jesus' love for his bride. It means deeply, being deeply satisfied with his love for his church. 
And it means being deeply satisfied with His love for you. Knowing that He has carried you in His heart to the cross, knowing that He knows life as we know it, rough, painful, and chaotic. Because you see, Jesus Himself came not into a paradise, but He came into the sin-cursed wilderness. Jesus knows life as we experience it. Jesus knows how hard it is. Jesus knows how chaotic it is. But if His love captures our hearts, if we understand how Jesus, He carried us in His heart as we went to the cross, And if we understand how He carries us in His heart as He brings us into the presence of God, then the best that this world has to offer will be seen as what it really is, as the cheap, fake substitute for the pure gold and jewels that Christ gives us. Did you catch how the city in New Jerusalem is described with gold as clear as glass, all these precious jewels? You know that's symbolic, don't you? What value, what intrinsic value can gold and jewels have in a place where there is no commerce? But this is the best that human language can do to portray something, to give us a glimpse of the glories and the riches that we will have in Jesus Christ. And so when he speaks of gold and jewels that adorn the city of God, don't think that exhausts or that is all that can be said about the city of God. It is just a glimpse. It is just a word picture by which we can sort of grasp at the glories of heaven. Because the true glories of heaven will surpass even the best poet's ability to sing its praise. And that's why I love this hymn by John Newton. Savior If of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all is boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. That's your home. That's where you are headed. That's where Jesus is taking you. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us a glimpse of the glory that is before us. And we give you praise and we honor you for you have granted us what we had no right to attain, what we had no power to achieve, you gave us through 
the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, since you have told us of the beauty, the glory that is before us, help us to see the temptations, the lures of this world for what it really is. A cheap substitute, worthless trinket, in light of what you have promised us. Help us to hold the treasures of this world lightly. Help us to give them away and not be in bondage to them, knowing that you have promised us something of immeasurable wealth and glory. And we pray, O Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.